I'm Malik from Malik Books, your community bookstore, specializing in African-American books and gifts full of culture diversity, the total African-American experience that brings the world together. MalikBooks.com, your place to shop for books. MalikBooks.com. Malik Books is what you need. Long before Barack Obama, Kamala Harris, Jesse Jackson, Al Sharpton, Cory Booker, Deval Patrick, and other black folk who ran for president, there was Shirley Anita St. Hill Chisholm, who ran back in 1972, 50 years ago. Today, on what would have been her 98th birthday, a conversation about Shirley Chisholm's life and lasting legacy, with Dr. Zinga A. Fraser, director of the Shirley Chisholm Project on Brooklyn Women's Activism. I am pleased to have her in this hour. Dr. Fraser, how are you today? I'm great, Travis. How are you? If I complained, I'd be an ingrate. I am doing well, <laughs> and I am delighted to have you on this program uh, for the hour. So much to talk about as we celebrate yes. what would have been the 98th birthday of one Shirley Chisholm. Let me start with this. I, I, I At the top of the show um, two hours ago, since I'm on for three hours every day, uh, I, I played that clip and said we'd be talking to you in this hour. And I opined then, and I want to re-opine now, what I hear when I hear that clip of Shirley Chisholm, here's a woman, a black woman, 50 years ago, talking about environmental justice, talking about issues of war and peace. Long before Bernie Sanders and his small campaign contributions that allowed him to raise more money than anybody, um, she's talking about campaign finance reform. Uh, 50 years ago, she's talking about identity politics. If that ain't a visionary, uh, Dr. Fraser, I don't know what is. Well, it, I think you, you hit it on the nail. I mean, Chisholm was developing a people's coalition that we see the fruition when we see, when we talk about a Bernie Sanders or really when we think about Barack Obama and his ability um, to, to gain access to the White House. Um, Chisholm was not only a visionary in terms of being one of the first people to talk against the Vietnam War during that time. But she's a visionary, you know, talking about the prison industrial complex when she's running in 72, before there was a name, the prison mm -hmm. industrial complex, right? And so she is, you know, a visionary. And, and so much of what's disremembered about Shirley Chisholm is the symbolic references, right? Um, but not the nuanced engagement that you provided with that clip that shows that Chisholm was a thoughtful and strategic leader. Beyond being the first of anything, she thought she made a way to think about progressive politics and what it looked like and how it was embodied by people who really had a certain kind of integrity. Um, and, you know, she got a lot of flack. We talk about her now, um, and she's remembered now in some, you know, kind of sanitized way. But what we just remember is really her radical politics mm. um, in 68 and 72. Mm. We're going to talk about the sanitize and uh, deodorize uh, uh, Shirley Chisholm. Uh, uh, if you live, uh, if, as, time, as time goes on, um, people mm -hmm. tend to do that to radical leaders. They did it to Dr. Yeah. King, but there's a radical MLK. Um, yeah. They did it to Mandela, but there is a radical Nelson Mandela. They've done it to Shirley Chisholm, mm -hmm. but there's a radical Shirley Chisholm. Uh, my friend Cornel West calls it the Santa Clausification 
the Santa Clausification of these black icons. What he means by that phrase is that they they present these figures to us as if they're Santa Claus with a big smile on his face and a bag of toys on his back and making everybody happy. Uh, the Santa Clausification, West says, of our leaders. They, again, they've done it to King, they've done it to Mandela, and they have done it to Shirley Chisholm. We're going to talk about it in this hour about the radical uh, Shirley Chisholm. Let me ask a couple questions right quick before I move forward on things mm-hmm. you've already said. First of all, um, speaking of MLK, uh, who I've written a book about, uh, we know the pushback that King got when he came out against the Vietnam War. And it wasn't just pushback. Dr. King died, uh, I write in this text, he died a pariah. It wasn't until years later, 20 years later plus, that we celebrated him with a holiday. But when he died, he was persona non grata. He was toxic. He was disinvited to speak at black churches, disinvited to speak at colleges, um, disinvited to, to, to make all the media appearances he'd become uh, known for because he was organizing this poor people's campaign, which they didn't care about. And he was critiquing Lyndon Johnson and the White House for this war in Vietnam. And so they basically uh, turned against uh, Dr. King. I say by they, I mean the media, white folk and frankly, black folk. They wanted black power. The younger generation wanted black power, and King was too passive for them. The older generations liked Lyndon Johnson because of the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act and thought King was making a mistake to push back so so vehemently and so publicly against Lyndon Johnson. So King caught hell for coming out against the war in Vietnam. What price did Shirley Chisholm pay for her stance? Well, she paid a, a significant price. It's important to note that Chisholm's first speech um, in Congress is about the is about her stance against the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of people, you know, said you just got to Congress. There's no need to rock the boat. Um, but Chisholm was vehemently against the Vietnam War when she was running against James Farmer, mm-hmm. who was, the, you know, the, the kind of political darling and everyone thought would win that, that um, campaign. Um, and so Chisholm really paid a price in terms of her her stances against the Vietnam War, but it also landed her on the list. Um, We don't know until much later that she becomes a part of a list of congressional black members, who she's one of the founding members of the Congressional Black Caucus, Mm -hmm. right? right? And she becomes, she's a part of the CBC members who become a part of a list that Nixon creates um, that talks about undesirables, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so we don't learn that until, of course, the impeachment and, you know, all of the things around um, Watergate. Um, but Chisholm plays a price in terms of her perceptions, in terms of working with people in Congress, as well as, you know, becoming someone who's seen as an enemy of the state, per se, um, by Nixon when she comes out against the Vietnam War. She was a trailblazer, and so uh, in this hour, we're celebrating the life and legacy of Shirley Chisholm, who ran for president 50 years ago this year, Uh, and uh, today would have been her 98th birthday. I am pleased to be joined for the hour in conversation by Dr. Zynga A. Fraser, uh, the director of the Shirley Chisholm Project on Brooklyn women's activism. Uh, when we come forward, we'll talk about how she became such a visionary. We'll talk about how she developed this worldview that allowed her to talk about issues like environmental justice and war and peace and campaign finance and, and the prison industrial complex long before these uh, things were even given the terms uh, by which we refer to them today, being a founding member of the Congressional Black Caucus. Again, a visionary and icon. We're celebrating in this hour Shirley Chisholm on KBLA Talk 1580. 
I'm Malik from Malik Books, your community bookstore, specializing in African-American books and gifts full of culture diversity, the total African-American experience that brings the world together. MalikBooks.com, your place to shop for books. MalikBooks.com. Malik Books is what you need. I'm Chad Bishmai. This is KBLA Talk 1580. Our phone number 1-800-920-1580. 1-800-920-1580. Our guest in this hour is Dr. Zinga A. Fraser who is the director of the Shoddy Chisholm Project on Brooklyn Women's Activism. Today would have been Shoddy Chisholm's 98th birthday, and it was 50 years ago this year uh, that she made history uh, as a black woman running for president of these United States. So long before Barack and Kamala and Corey and Al and Jesse and Duvall and others who run for president uh, in black skin, Shoddy Chisholm was there, uh, and we are celebrating in this hour her life and legacy 50 years after her historic run. I want to play a clip right uh, right quick here of uh, another clip of Shoddy Chisholm uh, appearing on Meet the Press. It's a Shoddy Chisholm on Meet the Press. Take a listen. Mrs. Chisholm, how do you account for the fact that uh, no more blacks than have have come to your cause in this primary process and now at the convention? I think you have to recognize, first of all, gentlemen, you have to really recognize that I'm doing something in this country that's never really been done before. It's a question of inculcation, reorientation, and education. Never before in this country, ever since the inception of the Republic, have you had a woman seriously running for the presidency. I'm not talking about someone nominating someone at the convention as a mere gesture of symbolism and tokenism. I'm talking about someone that has been going out in the highways and byways for the past seven and a half months in saying to the American people that if indeed this is a multifaceted society, that Mrs. Chisholm also can be considered a person that can run for the presidency of this country. I was breaking a tradition, a tradition in which only white males have only been the gentlemen in this country that have guided the ship of state. So you don't expect people, black, white, men, or women, to suddenly overcome a tradition that has been steeped ever since the inception of this republic. So I understand that. I've broken the ice. Shorty Chisholm put it down, man. I mean, <laughs> you can't, you cannot fade her presentation, and that's a black woman in '72 talking to a bunch of white men on Meet the Press, and she did not bite her tongue. Long live the memory, the life, the legacy of uh, one Shorty Chisholm, uh, Dr. Zinga A. Fraser. Um, when you hear that clip, how do, you, how, do you, <laughs> how does it fall on you? Well, it falls on me if she can read, you know, as they would say, as my students would say, she could definitely um, read uh, people oh, yeah. um, for what they were worth. Um, and what's also interesting to, to note about the Meet the Press and just her on national TV, she literally had to fight. Um, she had an FCC suit against um, against NBC at the time because they would not allow her the same amount of time as the other white male candidates mm. um, who were running for the presidency at that time. But, I mean, you know, Chisholm was such a phenomenal, I think what we, we also just remember about her was that she was such a phenomenal orator, speaker, and strategist. Yes. And she really had the ability to speak to the people, but also engage in a kind of intellectual assassination of folks <laughs> who really questioned, right, her, uh, her ability, not only her ability as a black woman, but her ability as a congressional political person. Um, but she, she really is able to, to pull people, you know, 
um, together to understand that she was really forceful, that she was intellectual, but she was also humble and compassionate and empathetic. I mean, she was able to do all of this in a number of words, right, um, and connect people who in many ways wouldn't be connected. I think what's also extraordinary about Chisholm is that you have people who hated her and loved her, but they in many ways respected her, mm-hmm. right? They didn't necessarily like or agree with her in terms of her political um, stances, but a number of them, even some of the most, you know, uh, adamant racist um, of, of the time would also talk about Chisholm at least being consistent. They mm-hmm. admired her for her consistency, they admired her for her fervor, and they admired her for her intelligence. And that's saying a lot um, mm-hmm. about a number especially the Dixiecrats during that time um, that had the admiration for Chisholm and her ability to really speak to the to the people as well as to, you know, um, those who were naysayers. I was saying to a group of folk just yesterday uh, in Northern California that consistency matters. Your, uh, your use of the word consistency just took me back to that uh, moment yesterday. Consistency matters in life. We have ups and we have downs. Uh, and the reason why you live your life This is me speaking now. The reason why you live your life, as Shirley Chisholm did, by a set of immutable principles is because consistency matters. Folk may not always agree, but they'll always respect you as long as you are consistent to those immutable principles by which you live your life. And Shirley Chisholm uh, is uh, exhibit A uh, in that regard. I love the phrase you use, intellectual assassination. That's exactly what she did on Meet the Press that day. That was intellectual <laughs> assassination. Uh, and she did it countless times in her political career, uh, which leads me to ask this uh, foundational question, which is how did Shirley Chisholm go about establishing such an enlightened worldview in 1972 as a black woman? Give me the backstory. How did she, again, create and 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 come to be um, um, so global uh, uh, and yet local in her thinking at the same time? Well, Chisholm is, I would always consider her a daughter of Brooklyn, but the ways in which I think about her as a daughter of Brooklyn is because of Brooklyn at that time is a diasporic place. Mm -hmm. And Chisholm is also a daughter of immigrants. Um, Caribbean immigrants, and she spent her time, when most people think of of the American immigration story, they think of going from the Caribbean and coming to the United States, as her parents did. But during the Depression, because it was so hard and difficult for her mother and father, um, they her mother sent her back, actually goes with her and her two sisters, back to Barbados. Um, to live in Barbados, and she spent her primary years um, in Barbados and then comes back to Brooklyn. And the reason why I mention that is because Chisholm understands, has a worldview of colonialism, imperialism, the ways in which African-descended people um, are oppressed throughout the world. She sees it happening in Barbados, and, of course, she sees it happening um, in in Brooklyn, and her reason for being in Barbados is also talking about how the depression and how, you know, economic sanctions really impacted black people and specifically black immigrants at that time. So that perspective of growing up um, in those kind of spaces really helped her create her own kind of worldview. And then growing up in Brooklyn, her parents, 
you know, are striving like so many African-American and Caribbean and diasporic people are doing during that time. And she's seeing what's going on around her in Brooklyn and the influence of her father um, being uh, connected in, in admiration of Garvey, Marcus Garvey, and, and her going to some of these UNIA meetings. And then much later when she, you know, becomes a teenager and she goes on to college, her being um, connected to a lot of the Caribbean um, politicians in Brooklyn and New York City who are really vying for political representation of that time. And so Chisholm comes of age in a time when, you know, Harlem is fertile with black political leaders like Adam Clayton Powell and other people like Paul Robeson and others and socialists who are in the black community in Harlem as well as Brooklyn. And really, you know, she goes to a meeting for the, um, a meeting at a local political machine meeting, and, you know, people were complaining that, the you know, they weren't picking up trash in the black community, and there were very few people who were standing up to say something. And so she, you know, also pictured the, the meeting where the blacks were on one side and white people were on the other side. And, you know, she really addressed and thought about the ways in which inequality looked like in her community. And all of these things are the reasons why we have this kind of um, cosmopolitan but really uh, progressive politics that she forms in 68 and 72 when she runs because she's around all of these progressive, radical thinkers of the time during, uh, you know, during her early years in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Um, she had such a vast intellect. Um, to what do you attribute that? What do we know about how she became such a wise woman? Well, she loved to read. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's, you know, people think it's you know this, there's, there has to be this really long drawn out idea of why she was um, a phenom, but her ability to really understand the world in which she operated from really was from her love of books Mm -hmm. and her ability to read a significant portion of, I would think, um, to be kind of really radical black political thought, Um, you know, reading things that were in the Black Scholar and other kind of black political publications of the time. And then, you know, some of it is also something in terms of like an osmosis of being around strong black women who may not have had, you know, a college education, but really had a common sense and understanding of the world. And she valued that common Mm -hmm. sense thinking. And that ability to sit around, as Audre Lorde would talk about, um, the kitchen table or Paulie Marshall, who was a, a black literary writer during mm-hmm. that time, talks about the role of the kitchen table specifically for African-American women and the way that it's played as an institu- a intellectual institution for them. Mm-hmm. And so she was able to, you know, ground herself and that kind of... Uh, humbleness and compassion and empathy, something that, you know, Ella Baker, who I taught about this week to my students, 
um, did and, and her upbringing coming from North Carolina mm-hmm. and having a communal and understanding that organizing isn't just going into a community and telling the community what they need, but listening to that community and trying to gather a rapport with that community and then provide them with the skills needed um, to get what they need um, for that community. And Chisholm is very similar in that kind of way in her ability to really listen to people but also create an intellectual way to talk if she has to talk to policymakers and read books that address those things, but also the ability to ascertain and conceptualize what she's read and provide it in a different Mm. way to the masses of people that she's trying to help and Mm. assist. Mm -hmm. Uh, When we come forward, I want to come back to this point here. When we come forward uh, after news, traffic, and sports, I want to come back to this point about, um, about her backstory. Uh, and I'm, I'm curious specifically as to how her being a daughter of immigrants allowed her to see America. And when you see America through the eyes of, uh, of, of being the child of immigrants, you see it differently than those of us who were born in gut bucket, Mississippi, or Alabama, Georgia, or, you know, the deep South or other parts of this country like I was. Um, and so I'm, I'm wondering how her being a daughter of immigrants, uh, shaped her vision, her view of America that she eventually uh, goes on to serve as an elected official, uh, representing New York, uh, Brooklyn, uh, in the U S Congress. A great deal more to talk about, um, beyond that, uh, how black folk responded to her campaign for president 50 years ago today. And of course, we're going to talk about the radical show Chisholm, a lot more to cover in our conversation with Dr. Zynga, a Fraser, as we celebrate the 50th anniversary of Shirley Chisholm running for presidency in this country and her 98th, what would have been her 98th birthday today. More of our Shirley Chisholm celebration when we come forward after news, traffic and sports. You're listening to KBLA Talk 15. Shirley Chisholm ran for president of these United States 50 years ago this year. Were she alive today, she'd be turning 98. Uh, but we are celebrating her life and legacy in this hour with our guest, Dr. Zinga A. Fraser, who is the director of the Shirley Chisholm Project on Brooklyn Women's Activism. Before I jump back into our conversation, uh, here's a, a short clip of an impromptu sort of press conference that Shirley Chisholm had to hold on a street in Brooklyn. So I realize that this is a rough road. But a catalyst for change in a society is usually persona non grata with those who have been the beneficiaries of the system. A catalyst for change has to be able to withstand the insults, the humiliations, the abuses, and the slurs. What's wrong with my running for president of this country? After all, for 15 years, I have been the ghost writer for a lot of them. That's a cold phrase. (laughs) That, (laughs) That right there will preach, as we say. Uh, for 15 years, I have been a ghost writer for many of them. That's a co- that's a cold line, Doctor Fraser. That's a cold line. <laughs> she had bars, as they say. She had bars. Yeah, she dropping bars. <laughs> she dropping bars, man. But I, I, when I heard that clip, a ghost writer for many of them. My lord, mm-hmm. it, there's, we could unpack that for for a couple hours. Just that one line. Indeed. Indeed, indeed. And I, I, I mean, I think who she was talking about, you know, that's the, the tea is who sure. was she specifically speaking about. But what she was saying is that she was definitely, especially a number of the women um, in the district that she's from, which is a district that I came out of, right, mm-hmm. um, they were really the the... They were the ones who really ran the campaigns and did the work. Um, And so she's talking about the black political leadership, male black political leadership, Mm -hmm. in fact, 
um, that she's working with in terms of the political machines um, that were operating in Kings County during that time. Um, And so, you know, she, she knows what, you know, she knows she has some kind of, entrance into the back rooms of politics in Brooklyn during that time. And so she's speaking to also the frustration, um, the frustration not only of herself, but the the tons of black women who are really the, the backbone of these political campaigns. And if there was a success um, to have black representation during that time in Brooklyn, um, it was because of these women and their ability to not only ghostwrite, but finance and provide strategies um, for winning. Um, and so that's what she's talking about in, yeah. in that time. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you situate, and, I, I, and I'm using the word situate because I, I don't want to, it's not about comparing or, or contrasting per se, um, both brilliant, mm-hmm. brilliant, brilliant sisters in their own right. I never had a chance to meet Shoddy Chisholm, but I did have the honor of meeting and interviewing Barbara Jordan. So I did um, <laughs> get, to, get, to, get to spend some time just loving on Barbara Jordan. Uh, but yes. when I think of Shoddy Chisholm, Barbara Jordan ain't that far off. And let me just pivot just for a second. Um, how would you situate Chisholm and Barbara Jordan? Well, that's what my book is about. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I've been and and I, I I literally you know have spent so much time in Houston, Texas, um, and um, got to interview you know tons of people who knew Barbara Jordan, um, as well as you know her family members. So I mean there is there are significant uh, differences between Jordan and Chisholm. And it's something that I, I talk about in detail in terms of being taking a phrase from R.G. Lord's sister, um, sister outsider, sister insider, is what I say. And so Ch- Jordan really is a master, a master of how to play the political game. I don't think people give Jordan enough credit for her ability to turn the most vehement uh, racist in the Texas, you know, state legislator mm-hmm. as well as those who were um, in Congress at the time, and even those who were just in the South. How much admiration! I tell people the only way to express how beloved Jordan is is go to uh, Austin, Texas, and go at the bottom floor, I believe, of the airport, and you see an entire bronze life—I mean, larger than life—statue of Barbara Jordan. And when I first saw it, I could not believe it, mm-hmm. I, because I was like, "Wow, she is literally in this this airport um, in full form." Um, and the, I'd never seen, you know, a statue that embodied someone um, of that nature. And it's because of the admiration, white or black, all races that people had for for Jordan. And it really was because she was a master at playing politics. Mm-hmm. She was. She played politics like a master plays chess. Um, and so she was really good at that, and she was a great legislator, her ability to do that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and Chisholm is great at playing politics, but I wouldn't say she's great as Jordan. Mm-hmm. Um, she takes an outsider approach. She's going to talk about people on TV, in the streets, on the corner, um, and she takes a different kind of approach to try to 
pull the needle. It doesn't mean that she didn't have a strategy in that time. She was strategic, but she has a different approach in terms of how she operates. And because she understood, you know, that there was a limitation in terms of the number of black representatives, there was a limitation in terms of who had political control and power. Um, but Jordan, you know, is able to understand politics in a different way because she's also coming from a different space. Yeah. It's hard to compare them because one is in the north and one is in the south, mm -hmm. and they have a different kind of political constituency that's very different. Um, sure. Jordan's political constituency in Houston is very different than Chisholm's political constituency. So, you know, sometimes Chisholm has the ability to do um, things that Jordan um, wouldn't be politically feasible for Jordan sure. to do. Yeah. And Jordan really believed that there was a way to maneuver the system, and that was the best way mm. to address the politics. And Chisholm, in so many ways, believed that, you know what, I've seen tons of people abide by a certain kind of rule of politics, um, and they never do when it comes to us. So the only way for me to um, be a catalyst for change is to work inside, but mainly outside yeah. as a national spokesperson. Mm -hmm. um, and it's something that, you know, does also get Chisholm into hot water with a number of the Congressional Black Caucus um, members because it was really a debate around what is the political strategy for the CBC in the late 1960s and early 1970s. Yep. Now I look forward to that text. Um, Sister Insider, Sister Outsider, Shirley Chisholm and Barbara Jordan, Black Women's Politics in the Post-Civil Rights Era, the book that uh, our guest, Dr. Zinga Fraser, is working on right now. I can't wait to get that one. Um, I'm watching my time here. Let me ask you this question right quick. Uh, I mentioned earlier that I wanted to ask, and I, and I will now, about how her being a daughter of immigrants sort of uh, formed her view of America. Um, I'm just trying to figure out how she became, and I'm using this word obviously uh, in a grand sense, so radical in her thoughts and views. I think anyone who grows up connected in understanding poverty has a different worldview. And for Chisholm, her parents being economic immigrants um, made had a significant impact on her her worldview and her understanding of what a number of people in her community were facing. Right, mm -hmm. her mother is a seamstress as well as someone who um, she comes out of, you know, the Caribbean women in her community, mainly in African-American women in Bedford-Stuyvesant, as well as Williamsburg, worked as domestics and looking at those women go out every morning, you know, when it's dark at 5 o'clock in the morning to go to, to, you know, work for a white family, whether it be throughout Brooklyn or in the city. Her father was a laborer who worked um, as uh, in a bakery. And so all of those things really have an impact on radicalizing Chisholm um, and thinking about the ways in which the American dream did not operate or exist as the same ways as it did for a predominantly white, yeah. middle-class, upper-class um, constituency. And so that radicalizes her to look at inequality, mm -hmm. to address things in legislation like she does in terms of looking at um, having having legislation that address the minimum wage, having legislation that address domestic workers, having legislation to address 
the issues around the disparities around immigration versus Haitians versus Cubans. Um, so all of those kind of things really impacted and radicalized Chisholm. And growing up in Bedford-Stuyvesant um, did that work as well. Wow. You heard Dr. Fraser say a moment ago that her truth-telling uh, rankled feathers of some members of the Congressional Black Caucus, of which she is a founding member. Um, so again, she didn't hold her tongue. Uh, but I am curious when we come forward as to how black folk writ large regarded her campaign for the White House 50 years ago this year. We are celebrating what would have been the 98th birthday of the iconic, the legendary, the trailblazing Shirley Chisholm on KBLA Talk 1580. Malik I'm Malik from Malik Books, your community bookstore specializing in African-American books and gifts full of culture diversity. The total African-American experience that brings the world together. MalikBooks.com, your place to shop for books. MalikBooks.com. Malik Books is what you need. Dr. Fraser, um, take me back 50 years ago uh, this year and tell me how black folk writ large responded to Shirley Chisholm's historic campaign for the White House. We played a clip of her on Meet the Press earlier, uh, and uh, they were pressing her on, on uh, uh, what level of black support she was receiving in her campaign. But what's, what's the real story here? Well, the real story is that a number of people really doubted her ability to run um, in 72. Uh, frankly put, a number of people thought she was crazy. Mm. Um, <laughs> and uh, Chisholm really had a valiant effort. I think what gets people focused is her inability to get to get the nomination in 72 and see that as a failure. But really, it, I, I tell people that we shouldn't think about 72 as a moment of failure, but as a moment of a building block that provides entrance of the people that we spoke about earlier sure. um, in our conversation. Um, and so Chisholm is running, number one, as she says in that statement, because it was a way to think about or rethink who has the audacity but who has the ability to run for the presidency and does it have to be the domain of white men white middle-aged men. And so Chisholm is going up against a number of black political leaders who want to be power brokers. Um, and a lot of people are reinventing history, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. So you have people like Walter Fonchoy, who is really advocating for a favorite son, and Julian Bond, who are advocating for a favorite son um, category um, to manipulate or at least find a way to uh, attack a, an agenda for the black political agenda with Mary Baraka and all of others who are really meeting around that time. There were all these really big meetings um, in 70, 70 and 71 around a political candidate, but not really about a political candidate, but a black political agenda. Mm -hmm. And so Chisholm, you know, she stumps a lot of the men, and that's the reality, um, because she's not waiting for a consensus. Mm -hmm. Her ability to be strategic is like, I'm not going to wait for someone to tell me I can run. I am going to run. And if you are going to support me, fine. If you're not, that's okay, too. And so it ruffles feathers because she doesn't wait to be adorned by black political leadership. Mm -hmm. She believes that she is a people's candidate, and she's running 
not only for black people, as she would say, but she's running for women. She's running for everyone. Yes. Um, and that also ruffled feathers with the black political leadership because they also wanted her to say that she was only going to run as a black candidate. Mm. Um, and so that inability for um, some of black male political leadership to see the intersectionality of what she was trying to do. And Chisholm understood black people cannot elect the presidency, right? So we also have to find a way that we can merge and create a coalition with other people yeah. um, to really significantly impact um, what was going on in TMD2. Our remaining moments with uh, Dr. Zinga A. Fraser as we continue our celebration uh, on what would have been her 98th birthday of the unbought and unbossed Shirley Chisholm on KBLA Talk 1580. Interrogating your assumptions and expanding your inventory of ideas. Let's get back to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. I've got a tight, tight four minutes left here, Dr. Fraser. Let me ask you a couple questions right quick here. Number one, um, we talked earlier about her being uh, on uh, Nixon's undesirables list. Um, Nixon hated a whole lot of people, but what made Shirley Chisholm undesirable for him? For him, uh, her ability to, as I say, (laughs) assassinate him with words. Mm -hmm. Um, Her and her progressive politics, um, Chisholm was connected uh, in many ways to the people, and she called Nixon out at every chance she could in terms of his inability to really address um, the political and social and economic needs of marginalized people. And so that's really what why Nixon hated her. And she also says that she wouldn't at that time vote for any appropriations of funding for um, – the military or any appropriations bill until Nixon got out of the Vietnam War. Um, and so that's, you know, why yep. he hated her so yep. much. How, how would you situate her progressivism then uh, in the American political experiment today? I think we see moments. I think it's ironic that we're at a political time where, I mean, literally today, Hakeem Jeffries um, gets the vote for um, the leadership of DNC, him coming from Brooklyn. He mm-hmm. actually uh, uh, spoke her name today on the House floor. Um, but I think what we see is, you know, Chisholm can also be a dividing line. I think, you know, she's a dividing line for a new progressive black politics that we see in the younger members of uh, the Congressional Black Caucus. Um, And not only Black Caucus, but some of the younger, specifically um, members who are minority women, who are expressing themselves, like a Cori Bush and others, who really are, uh, are finding a way to to call out those who who are who are really against progressive politics. Um, and so she provides that kind of legacy yeah. and that kind of radicalism. Yeah. Uh, here's my exit question. What then, to your mind, is her enduring, her abiding legacy? Her embodying legacy, I think, is, as you mentioned, her being unbought and unbossed. And it's not just having the will and the strategy to to go against the grain, but also it's a telltale sign of being a bought and a boss is being a, the ability to accept 
the wrath of people who don't agree with you. Mm-hmm. Um, being on board in a bus also has its limitations, but in many ways, it's you know Chisholm's uh, fierceness of being on board and on boss and being connected to people. Um, that provides a political legacy for years to come and finds a way to, you know, connect to uh, marginalized people throughout the throughout the world. A lot of folk have been giving credit for this quote, which I know is a favorite of our guest, Dr. Zinga A. Fraser, uh, a favorite Shirley Chisholm quote. A lot of folk giving credit for this and people have said it in a variety of different ways. But she said it first and she said it best. Service is the rent we pay for the privilege of living on this earth. Service is the rent we pay for the privilege of living on this earth. We celebrate the life and legacy of Shirley Chisholm. Would have been 98 where she's still here today, but her enduring legacy uh, is uh, is ongoing. And uh, we uh, want to take a moment today, an hour of our show today, to just dedicate it to, um, to the memory, uh, again, to the life and legacy of the great, the iconic, the legendary, Shirley Chisholm. Couldn't have done it without Dr. Zinga A. Fraser, who's director of this uh, Shirley Chisholm project on Brooklyn women's activism. What a great hour. What a great conversation. Thank you, Dr. Fraser, for your time and for sharing those uh, beautiful insights. Thank you so much, Tavis, and thank you for honoring Chisholm. It's my my great honor and delighted to have had you on. That is our show for today. Back tomorrow morning, Lord willing to do it all over again. 9 a.m. to 12 noon Pacific time. Time now for the KBLA Midday Money Chain. Up next, the Millionaire's Roundtable with Lynn Richardson. After that, Naja Roberts ahead of the crypto curve. Old money, new money, don't matter. We got you covered here on KBLA Talk 1580. Until tomorrow morning, thanks for tuning in. And as always, keep the faith. I'm Malik from Malik Books, your community bookstore, specializing in African American books and gifts full of culture diversity. The total African American experience that brings the world together. Malikbooks.com, your place to shop for books. Malikbooks.com. Malik Books is what you need.